Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, joining me today on the phone is Jack Witness and Jim Lengel, both of whom are involved in an organization called Responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate this, it. This is something I know very little about, so I'm excited uh, that you brought it to my attention and also to learn about it. Can you take a few minutes, maybe we'll start with Jack, and talk a little bit about your background? Um, well, my background professionally, I was a pediatrician. Um, I've been coming to Vermont all my life. Uh, my mother was, uh, and both parents were born here, and I've been living here uh, since retirement for the last five or six years. I've gotten involved in a number of uh, uh, areas in conservation, which has been, a, would say, a lifelong passion of mine. That's great. Good for you. Good choice on Vermont. Um, uh, and Jim, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. We chose Vermont in 1972. My wife and I both began as teachers in Vermont, and then we worked through the public education system here, and we closed our careers teaching uh, at the university level in a variety of places in America and around the world. We've come back to Vermont to retire. We have a little camp on Lake Elmore. Oh, that's a beautiful spot for sure. Um, I read that you were Deputy Commissioner of Education at one point. Who was the uh, commissioner at the time? The commissioner at the time in the 1980s Uh. was Stephen Kagan. Ah. So that was a long time. Yeah, that was. I, I, um, I know I, your name didn't ring a bell and, and, um, I just was curious who the commissioner was at the time. So that was a while ago, but uh, thank you for your service for both of you. Um, so this issue is very interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes? Kind of catchy. Uh, which was formed two years ago. Jack, you want to take that? Sure. Thanks. Um, I became involved when I got contacted by some of my other con- contacts in the conservation uh, water group in, in Vermont, and they said, hey, we think we have a problem here. How can we solve it? Would you like to join us? Well, I'm a joiner, and so um, I had noticed this myself. I'm in southern Vermont. I'm on uh, Lake uh, Raponda, and like many of your listeners, I didn't know what these boats were until I saw them myself. Um, and they're, they make huge waves. They made a huge impression on me, and I could see what they were doing uh, to the lake and what their potential for adverse consequences were. So the group got together. We sought help. We didn't know what to do. You know, we're uh, just citizens like everyone else, and we sought uh, advice from the uh, Uh, Agency of Natural Resources, since this is an area of their responsibility, and they said, hey, you could could approach this uh, in a couple ways. One would be the legislative way, but they said, we also have the authority to change the water rules to uh, help out here, and would you consider that? So it was with that as background that maybe four or five of us got started, and since then we've uh, expanded such that we now have 35 or 40 solid members, but many, many other supporters. 
That's great. So you said um, this; these boats are a little bit different than other boats. Um, what what makes them different? I I think I read somewhere that the motor is backwards or something strange like that. Um, well, you got you got it part right. Pat. Okay, close. <laughs> so um, what they do is uh, unlike this, these, these are motor boats, so they're not like ski boats. So as you're pointing out, they're quite different. So the motor is shifted towards the back of the boat rather than the middle of the boat. And the reason that's important is ski boats skim the water, and they go horizontally with the water. They don't create very big wakes. In fact, you know, they like calm, still water. Well, wake boats, in order to create a wake, which is what the purpose of these boats are, to create a wake that you can wake surf behind. That's without a rope. So to do that, what they do is they move the motor to the back of the boat, and then they do other things um, to enhance the boat being uh, weighted towards the rear. The main and the most important one is they have ballasts. And these ballasts take in between two and 5,000 pounds of water when they enter the water. Hmm. So that's the weight of a sedan automobile. And they do have some other devices that can be uh, included to enhance wake. So the whole idea of these boats, which are different than anything we've ever seen before, is to make these huge wakes, and so they do this by moving the motor and putting all this weight in the back. Interesting. Yeah, I, I when I said backwards, I, I read that somewhere, and, and I thought, well, I don't even know how that would work, but moving it backwards makes a lot more sense. Um, so, Jim, maybe you could tell us what the thread is here. Um, I, I'm assuming they're just doing this so that they can surf and, and some sports, but... What's the damage that these wakes are doing? Well, Pat, in order to surf, you've got to make a big wave, mm-hmm. a big wake, at least three feet high. You've got to have, you've seen people, pictures of people surfing on the ocean. They need a big wave to surf on. So they make huge wakes. And what do these wakes do? First of all, when they hit the shore, they can erode the shoreline. Right. Second, the, the big propellers that are required in order to get that big wake, they raise phosphorus and other stuff from the bottom of the lake. And we know that that phosphorus leads to blue-green algae growing in the lake, which is not a good thing for our lakes. Uh, also, Jack mentioned the ballast tanks, which means that if they come into Lake Elmore, they go out to the middle, and then they fill up their tanks with ballast. And they'll probably also pick up some invasive plants, the kind of plants that came from far away that are choking many of our lakes. Then they surf, let's say, on Lake Elmore. Then they put their boat back on the trailer, and they go to, let's say, Caspian Lake, which doesn't have any of those invasive species. They launch their boat, but the water from Lake Elmore, with all those little seeds and plants, and ends up in Caspian Lake. And it spreads the species from one lake to another. Obviously, also, the engines make a lot of noise. Many of these boats have 300 or 1,200-watt stereo systems to play music. (laughs) And, of course, their, their engines consume fossil fuel. So in many ways, they're not good for the environment. They're also not good for those of us who kayak or go out in our little sailboats or who fish or swim or water ski 
or just sit and enjoy the lakes because their wakes, by their very nature, are going to disturb us. Right. They'll tip over the kayak. They'll swamp a swimmer. Uh, also, down the road, if Lake Elmore were to, be, were to have wake boats on it every day in the summer, nobody would want to go to Lake Elmore anymore. So Elmore's economy, which depends on that lake, would slowly, over the years, decline. The value of my little camp would go down because Lake Elmore would be spoiled by these wake boats. Well, I think what I heard, blue-green algae, and and I know we've had a problem with that as it is, and um, that's not a good thing at all, particularly for dogs and and, um, uh, lots of other reasons. It's pretty scary stuff. So, uh, Jack, what... um, what sports? I, I kept reading about wake boat sports. Is there more than just the surfing? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's. Well, one is maybe not exactly a sport, but there's wake surfing, and that's done pretty much in a straight line. As we've said, um, it's done on the huge wave that's created in the back of the boat. And I might just add, you don't need a, a rope. Right. It's literally, you just surf on them. You don't need a rope like a ski boat. Um, there is uh, uh, wake boarding, which is, is sort of like water skiing, but it's with these big wakes. And there, they do are they do use a rope uh, that they're attached to, and they're a little bit further behind the boat. They don't have to go in quite such a straight line, but they still generate these large wakes. And then the last uh, quasi sport—I'm not sure I'd call it a swar- sport. But, um, which is just cruising. Um, you know, we have uh, people that, in wake boat mode, with the ballast filled up, that just like to cruise around the lake without anyone behind them. And that, to me, makes makes the least sense for all the reasons that Jim just cited. Right. Wow. I am very this is very curious. I'm trying to visualize this, and it's um, just hard to do that. Um, so, Jim, I think... You, the responsible wakes for Vermont Lakes would like to see some management of these wake boats. I'm assuming what um, what are you doing to um, to get some attention and maybe get A and R um, to to manage wake boats. Well, I think that A and R being responsible for what happens on Vermont's lakes and ponds. You should know that the people who live in Elmore or the people who use Lake Elmore, they can't make the rules for Lake Elmore. Right. If uh, only the state can make rules for Vermont's lakes. The lakes, in effect, are owned by the state. So if people don't want wake boats, they have to go to the state, to the Agency of Natural Resources, which the responsible wake group has done. And I think what what people want to do is not to ban these from all lakes in Vermont, but only to allow them where the water is deep, where their propellers can't stir up the phosphorus, where they're far away from kayakers, canoers, swimmers, sailors, fishermen, children's camps, so a thousand feet from shore, and that they are... Um, only on lakes that are large enough to allow the wake boat and the rest of us to uh, use the lake at the same time. Well, that's just great. Um, Now, you put together a petition 
Um, and what was that petition? What did it ask A&R to do? Um, pretty much what you just said to us to, to sort of manage and limit uh, their use. Uh, you're obviously not asking for them to not be used. You're asking for them to be used responsibly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so as, as you may have concluded in what Jim has alluded to, um, we're not against uh, having fun on on, uh, on wake boats. They do have their place, but we just think it needs to be done appropriately. And conceptually, this means out far enough from shore. It means in water that's deep enough because the propeller stirs up the bottom, which causes problems, which maybe we'll get into in a little while here. And they also need to have enough of an area in which they can they can perform these things. So those were the things that uh, we thought of, and we got a great deal of help, I would say, from the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. As I said, we're not we're not experts in terms of uh, how to go about this petition process. So we sought help and advice from them, and they provided that. And one of the things that they mentioned, which is one of the tenets that we've tried to follow is follow the science. Um, we don't want to come up with something that's just crazy and unsupported by science, even though personal observation is very important too. So we went with the science and we uh, developed uh, these uh, criteria that we uh, started with that affect the uh, public use of, of water uh, rules and and again, this was advice, good advice and guidance that we got from DEC about how to do this. But, you know, we were novices feeling our way, but we really have uh, more and more people who joined our group, more and more talented people with all sorts of expertise, and it just added to well, um, Jack, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've got to take a quick break, and we'll be back, and I'd love to explore more of the, the science behind um, your petition and what you're asking. So this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back. Hi there, it's Pat McDonald. I'm back with you with Vermont Viewpoint and my guests, Jack Witness and Jim Langle, and we were talking about responsible wakes for Vermont lakes. Um, Jack, you talked about science, uh, basing your recommendations on science. Obviously, there's a wake, uh, wake boats out there in other lakes and other states um and the science must back uh back up what you're recommending um where where is this um, studies being done um well there's there's a number of studies but i'd also say pat there's a lot more uh, studies that are needed in in the future but there have been some good studies in quebec which is not ah. too far from vermont and recently there was an important study done in the, the state of minnesota and these studies focused on the distance from shore, and I sh- should add that you know, our recommended distance based on these scientific studies is 1,000 feet, um, and this was uh, what the Quebec uh, investigators uh, had recommended based on their findings of uh, the power and the energy as they hit the shoreline causing uh, potential erosion, and they saw some evidence of turbulence uh, caused by this. And... Uh, the, uh, they also studied depth, and a number of studies have, have done that. And the science there currently, and again, I'd emphasize there's still a lot more that needs to be done, 
has determined that um, there are significant uh, turbulence changes down to 20 feet in the water, disturbances that would affect plants, disturb the, uh, the uh, nutrients there. And I should add that uh, one of these studies has do documented that phosphorus levels can be increased just by a couple passes of wake boats. Mm. And this is highly significant because phosphorus is so important to what you had mentioned earlier, Pat, that is algae blooms. Ooh, that scares so, me, that stuff. So that's really a concern. And uh, those are, the, those are the, the main studies. As I say, more are needed. But um, our interpretation is that, that 1,000 feet and 20 feet in depth are what's needed. Great. That's really great. Now, um, I also read that um, the organization feels that the wake boats actually conflict with four Vermont uh, lake-related statutes could you explain explain that, Jack, maybe, or, or Jim Jack? One of the two. Sure. Um, well, the one that we've been talking about and the one that we focused our uh, petition on was the use of public water rules. Uh, and this is one that indicates that, you know, as Jim said, the waters are controlled and regulated and owned by the state of Vermont for the good of the public. So they need to be shared. And so... Um, this needs to be done both uh, in the interest of current and future generations um, with appropriate mix of water-based recreational activities and with concern for the environment. So I think based on what we've said, I think you can see that, you know, there's a problem there. And as I say, this is where our efforts were, were focused. The other three uh, areas that uh, of statute is the Shoreland Protection Act. This came about in, I think it was 2014 or thereabouts. And here the shoreline um, needs to protect it. And here um, there's conflict with the erosion that's, that's caused um, because of uh, nutrients and pollutants entering the water, causing algae blooms and, and other things. So there's a conflict there. The third is the aquatic uh, invasive control uh, program statutes. And this has to do with moving boats from lake to lake, and this is what, is what Jim had mentioned. Well, wake boats with their ballast cannot be emptied. This has been studied scientifically, and they have between 8 and 25 gallons of water still left when they go from lake to lake. So there's, there's great potential for uh, this in terms of the spread of aquatic invasive species. Um, and then the last one is the Vermont Water Quality Standards, which was established under Vermont's Clean Water Act. Hmm. And this has to do with, you know, the things that we talked about before, disturbing the bottoms, phosphorus levels, uh, as well as many other things, such as uh, damaging to uh, aquatic biota and wildlife, damaging uh, the aesthetic quality of Vermont lakes and ponds, um, good quality boating, interfering with that, and fishing. Um, so there's those four statutes that wow. it's not consistent with. Yeah, there's been so much books. attention to Vermont, Vermont having clean water. Um, uh, the feds have been working with us for years to try to get Lake Champlain cleaned up and all of the other uh, lakes and uh, streams here in Vermont. I'm, it's surprising that, um, well, I'm hoping that they're paying attention, are they not? I hope. Well, they are, and there's, there's putting more and more effort to this. But, you know, Pat, um, mankind, as there's more of us around and there's more of the shoreline that gets disturbed that protects these lakes, 
you know, there, there are these concerns, and when you add wake boats and their problems on top of this, it becomes an additive effect. Well, uh, Jim, I was, I was looking at the list of um, invasive species, and we've heard all of these before, zebra mussels, Eurasian uh, water milfoil, the spiny water fleas, I'm not so sure I'm, I'm up on, but I remember when I was commissioner of motor vehicles that in the back of all the boat information, we had uh, warnings about uh, these invasive species. So this is something that, that's been an issue for Vermont for a long time, and it doesn't sound like these ballast tanks are helping any. Well, it's, it, it's no, the excuse me, Jim, go ahead. You're, you're right, Pat. This has been a problem for Vermont. And these invasive species came from away, the Eurasian water milfoil, which we're infected with at Lake Elmore. Huh. It costs us, the people who live around the lake, it costs us Forty-five or fifty thousand dollars a year to have divers come and pull out the milfoil. Huh. The milfoil came originally from Asia in the ballast tanks of big ships. Those ships went to the Great Lakes. They, the milfoil from their when they emptied their ballast tanks went into the Great Lakes, established itself there. Then recreational boats with ballast tanks went and to the Great Lakes. And then from the Great Lakes, they took a trailer, went into Lake Champlain, went into Lake Elmore. And so many of our lakes, uh, a good half of them, have invasive species that have been passed Mm -hmm. through the bilge tanks and the ballast tanks of boats, something we didn't have 100 years ago. Are the spiny water fleas something new to Vermont? I've just never heard of them. They're, They're something that other localities have found mm. in their water that reproduce quickly and foul things up. They they clog things up and they foul things up. We don't have too many lakes that are infested with that right now. Our biggest pests uh, are the uh, Eurasian water milk right. oil. In, in a long second place would be zebra mussels. Right. And Pat, I want to remark on something you said earlier. We know that Lake Champlain has Parts of Lake Champlain have been spoiled. We know that lakes like Lake Carmi have been spoiled. Uh, Elmore has been infected with milfoil, so have many other lakes. We should have known better. Mm. We should have stopped this when we knew it was happening. And we didn't. And therefore, we our, our lakes got spoiled. Let's not let that happen again. Right. Well, especially our lakes, especially Lake Champlain, is such an impact to our economy here in Vermont. Um, so if um, those aren't used and don't attract visitors, we could be in a little trouble um, economically, plus the fact we need the clean water. It's um, something to be watched for sure. Um, Jim, I, I think you and I talked, uh, emailed or something about this thing called home lake rule and – um, the difference between the proposed rule changes at DEC um, included the addition of home lake rule. Could you talk about that and why this seems to be important? Well, the original petition from the responsible wakes uh, for Vermont lakes didn't uh, deal if, uh, too much with invasive species. But the Department of Environmental Conservation, who is working on drafting the rule, heard from many lakes that really 
you've got to take care of wake boats, but you also have to take care of them moving invasive species. So they, uh, the DEC of their own accord, added what they call the home lake rule, which prevents boats with ballast tanks from moving from one lake to another Hmm. without having been cleaned out and thoroughly inspected to make sure that they don't have any invasive species. And Responsible Wakes supports that addition to what we originally petitioned for. We have to take another quick break, um, but I'd like to come back and talk um, about the cleaning of the boats and how that should be managed. I'm just curious about it. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, it's Pat McDonald back with you with Vermont Viewpoint. Joining me are Jack Witness and Jim Lengel, and we're talking about the impact of wake boats on our lakes. Um, so, Jim, we just left off talking about um, uh, home lake rule. And before that, you were mentioning how boats go from one lake to another, Lake Champlain to uh, to Lake Elmore. Um, and then you mentioned cleaning. Um, are they supposed to um, clean and then have the boats inspected before they go into another lake? Yes, Pat. In fact, there's a Vermont statute that Love makes it. it illegal. For a boat owner to take a boat and from one lake to another that might have invasive species and not clean it in between. Uh, that's always been illegal. It's difficult to enforce right. without having a, a police presence at every boat launch. We have uh, hundreds of boat launches all over Vermont. So uh, the DEC, in, ad- in adding the home lake rule, is going to require that any boat, uh, that wake boat that goes from lake to lake, has a cleaning. And there, there's ways to do this. You go to a marina and they kind of wash it out with hot water and, and make sure that there's no uh, no invasive species in any, any of your tanks or bilges. Mm. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, I hope DEC has um, the ability to enforce it. Um, because that's important. Um, in your proposed uh, t- rule changes and stuff, you changed the definition of the things that we were talking about right now. And I don't know, Jack, could you talk about the, there were four of them, wake boat, wake surfing, wakeboarding, and wake sport zones. Why was it important to change the definitions, and how did you do that? Well, I wouldn't say we changed the definitions, but we uh, made the definitions to fit Ah. as best we could as amateurs in terms of what would be covered. Ah. So it's a technical issue, Pat, and so you want to include things there that don't get misinterpreted and come back to hit you on the back (laughs) of the head, uh, as it were. So those statements which are in our petition have to do with the wake boat. They have to... defining it with ballast and these other devices that move. Wake surfing um, includes behind the, the, uh, the boat without the rope. The wake boarding, as I said, you do have a rope. And then the wake sport zone. Um, I, the wake sport zone is uh, 
if you use our two criteria, that is distance from shore and depth, after you've applied those, you still need, as I was mentioning earlier, an area to do the sport. So the wake sports zone is what is left on the lake. So after you've gone out 1,000 feet, according to what we recommend, and in no areas where there's 20 feet of water, those are areas where you could do the sport. So how much of an area do you need, basically, for that? Well, we did some estimates. This is We wouldn't claim that this is scientific, but we estimated that it should be 60 acres, and it has to do with how long uh, and how much enjoyment those with uh, doing wake sports, surfing and, and wakeboarding, would have. And as it would as it turns out, they'd have somewhere between, you know, one and four minutes to cross that area. Mm. doesn't seem like a lot, but you do need that space. And so technical reasons are why we came up with those definitions. And it'll be the, the, the lawyers that work with the DEC that will fine-tune that. But we did the best job we could. So it sounds like DEC is uh, obviously working with you. And um, are they understanding of the issue and supportive of change? Or are there many organizations um, not so crazy about uh, making any changes? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I would just have you and your listeners know that there's been no major changes to the Vermont public water use rules for probably 20 or maybe even 30 years. The last one had to do with personal watercraft, and now they're limited to lakes that are uh, over 300 acres. So this doesn't come up very often, and so um, we've had to seek their help with that. Um, We have uh, depended on them to help us through the process. They're not telling us what to do uh, in terms of what we write, but, you know, there is a process with the petition process, and they've helped us with this greatly. There's one important point that I would like to go back to that has to do with um, the home lake rule, Pat. Mm -hmm. We did, as you pointed out, Pat, we did not have that in our original petition. And the reason we did not was we were focusing on the statute that involved the use of public water rules. If you read that, it doesn't include aquatic invasive species and what is needed for transport across the uh, on the roads. So the advice we got was, you know, we can only deal with this one, uh, one statute. So we were very distraught about this because we recognize all the things that we've talked about. We recognize that if we, if our recommendations were put in force, that these boats, wake boats, might be forced onto other lakes. We spent five or six pages, the 54 pages in our petition, Describing that, we were wringing our hands and, and very angst. And, you know, you mentioned the DEC. Well, as Jim mentioned, they listened to those in the Northeast Kingdom. And what we couldn't do but wanted to do, they did. We're very, very grateful to them, and we're grateful to the Northeast Kingdom lakes that, that brought this into attention. If we could have, we would have. That's great. Um, now, your petition has been filed, or there are still opportunities for people to to sign on and to show their support? Jim? The petition has been was filed quite a while ago okay. with the Agency of Natural Resources. The Department of Environmental Conservation has worked very hard to do the scientific study necessary 
and to draft. They have drafted a proposed rule. It's the secretary of the agency that is allowed to propose rules right. uh, that apply to our lakes. So they are moving forward with the rulemaking. And people have an opportunity to give them feedback on their proposed rule. There's going to be a meeting on February 15th up at Caspian Lake in Greensboro where anyone can attend and, if you'd like to, make a comment uh, about their proposed draft rule. So we're hoping that people do that. If people want to become supporters of the responsible wakes and the whole approach, they can go to our web- website and sign up as a subscriber to our newsletter. Our new website is responsiblewakes.org. Great. Uh, do, do you know, um, it says, you just said Caspian Lake. I'm not so familiar with, is that a, there's there a meeting hall there, something um, um, that people would recognize to go to for this meeting? Yeah, it's the uh, yes. Greensboro Center for the Arts. Oh, okay, perfect. Let's uh, make sure they know that, Greensboro. Okay, Center for the Arts. All right, great. Um, that sounds like a very important meeting. And I'm sure you can read the rules on the website, um, on ANR's website, too. Um, so you should check that out. Um, and on your website, which people should go check, as you just mentioned, um, um, you have actual stories from people, testimony, uh, about 12 Vermont lakes, um, and there are many, there are more than one testimony on each of the lakes. There's, there's several for almost all the lakes. And it was very, they were very interesting and compelling. Um, could you maybe share one or two that come to mind about what, what people have been experiencing because of these lake, um, the boats? Sure, Pat. I'll start with Joe's Pond up in uh. Caledonia County in West Danville. If you go on Route 2, you go past it each time. And Terry Gerland, who uh, lives there and has been there for quite a while on Joe's Pond, he says, uh, I qu- I'll quote him, the, the plying back and forth of wake boats is irrevocably changing the essence of Joe's Pond. What used to be a relatively quiet body of water has become a veritable washing machine with large artificial waves never seen before arriving from all directions. Wake boats have fundamentally changed the nature of boating, sailing, swimming, paddleboarding, kayaking, and shoreline enjoyment on our small Joe's pond. That's one example. Another example, uh, Jack, maybe you could give an example from uh, Lake Raponda. Yeah, I, I'd love to. So one of my neighbors um, likes to kayak and she loves dogs, and she kayaks with her dog. Well, she's given up kayaking anymore because of when the wake boats are there, there's the danger of them overturning. And so this also applies in other situations uh, on our lake as well. Um, older people and uh, the young are susceptible to these waves in terms of being knocked over. And, Pat, you'd mentioned um You'd like to see and understand what these are like. And on our website uh, from my own lake, I did a little home video. Uh, it lasts a minute or a minute and a half. It shows you what these wakes are like um, as they approach the shore and my dock and my uh, huh. raft, 
coming from six or eight hundred feet away, and it shows people wake surfing on the lake. So it's a great resource, our website, to illustrate some of these things that, as you say, are in the testimonials that we have. That's great. Jack, where is, where is, I'm, shame on me for not knowing this, where is your lake? I've never heard of it. Well, we're in a whole different country. We're in southern Vermont. So, Below Route 4, we know that, right? So it's near Mount Snow, if you know oh, where that is. I so do. Rattleboro and Bennington, it's about halfway. That sounds great. We actually vacationed one time for a week on Mount Snow. It was fabulous. Um, it's a beautiful area down there, so thank you. I read that your organization had published a report entitled Economic Impact Analysis of Wake Surf Boat Regulations in Vermont. Um, and your organization uh, did this. Could you talk about it? What I thought was interesting was that you approached it from two different scenarios. One was if no further regulations of wake surfing are, are implemented, and the second scenario is if Vermont regulates wake surfing, um, what's the impact, what's the cost, what's the benefits? Um, Jack, could you take us through that? Well, I'll start, and then I'm going to pass it over to Jim. Okay. So... Pat, in our original petition, um, there are certain requirements that we had to include in order for it to be complete. So we did include a few economic uh, points in our original petition, um, not very many, but one of the requirements that the Agency of Natural Resources has as they do the petition process, they're responsible for coming up with an economic impact analysis. Right. And so... We were asked um, to assist with that, not that we're experts, but to provide our own input and ideas about this. So this does not fulfill a requirement that the Agency of Natural Resources has, but we helped them with it. And Jim um, did the lion's share of this, so I'll have him tell you about the specifics about what we included to try to help the agency with this requirement. Jim? Thanks, Jack. Pat, as you, as you said, uh, there are two scenarios in our economic analysis. First is what would happen if no rule were enacted? And the second scenario is what would happen economically if a rule like this were promulgated? Uh, let's look at the first scenario first. Nothing happens. Well, our analysis predicts that wake boat sales would continue to increase in Vermont, we'd get more and more wake boats on our lakes every year. Around the country, wake boat sales are increasing between 20 and 30 percent per year. In Vermont, it's not as much because they haven't really found their way here in great numbers yet. But if no rule passed, more wake boats would be sold, and that would be good for Vermont boat dealers. So there'd be a net economic gain to a few boat dealers if no uh, rule were passed. If no rule were passed, those boats would end up on our lakes. They'd be on Lake Elmore. They'd be on the Waterbury Reservoir. They'd be on Lake Iroquois, on Lake Raponda. And over the years, slowly, they would uh, spoil the lakes. They'd spoil them environmentally uh, with erosion and uh, bringing up of phosphorus and blue-green algae. They'd spoil the lakes by making it almost impossible for kayakers, fishermen, small boaters, swimmers, paddle boarders to operate. 
if one wake boat were to plow down the middle of Lake Elmore on a Saturday afternoon, the rest of us would have to go ashore. That wake would reach the shores, shorelines on both sides of, of Lake Elmore so that you couldn't do any of those other activities. And so slowly, the uh, lakes would become less valuable. People's property would be less valuable. Fewer tourists would come to any of the lakes that support tourism because they wouldn't be able to do the things they wanted to do when they came here. 16% of the people who come to Vermont as tourists come for water-based recreation. Mm -hmm. They come for our lakes. They come to canoe, to fish, to kayak, to paddleboard. We lose that tourist income if the lakes were full of wakes, if the lakes were spoiled by algae and invasive species. So the economic effect of not doing anything is to see our lakes get spoiled, our tourist revenues go down, and our lakefront property values go down. Now, you now mentioned, the other side. Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. May I just cut in? You, um, you mentioned fishing. Um, there must be a impact um, on the lakes for fishing. Um, what's the impact to the uh, to the fish themselves, but also people wanting to fish uh, must be stirring up the waters? Mm-hmm. Well, there are many fishing-related organizations that have supported our petition, Good. and they're listed on our website. Uh, yes, there's an effect on fish. We don't have a lot of science. Because wake boats are so new, we don't have a lot of science that says here's what it does to the fish, nor were we able to get any testimony from any of the fish on the lakes that have been affected. Mm. So, But we can imagine that if, a, if it affects the bottom and stirs up the mm-hmm. bottom, it's going to change the fish habitat, and that can't be good for our fish. No, it doesn't sound it. Okay, th- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, the second scenario would be, let's suppose that the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Agency of Natural Resources does promulgate this rule. Well, what will happen is that we will preserve the use of the lakes by all the other traditional forms of recreation, from fishermen to kayakers to swimmers to children's camps, all the other things we've traditionally done on our Vermont lakes. Those would continue to grow. They've been growing already, and they continue to thrive, which would bring in tourist income. It would bring in tax, uh, sales tax income. It would help fill our restaurants and our cabins around the lakes. It would be good for the Vermont economy. Now, it would have a slight negative effect on those few Vermont boat dealers that sell wake boats. They probably wouldn't sell as many. And those few Vermonters that currently own wake boats would be limited in how they could use them on certain lakes. So it would have a little bit of economic uh, negative effect. All in all, our economic analysis estimates that it would we'd gain about $93 million by passing this rule, and we might lose about $8 million in lost wake, wake boat sales. That's how it comes out. That's great. Um, so are there any additional obstacles um, to be overcome that you're thinking that's going to happen in the future, Jim? I think that the obstacles that need to overcome right now is we need to get this rule 
through right. the process. It needs to be promulgated by the Agency of Natural Resources. We hope that they propose a rule with a thousand foot distance from shore. Uh, second, that rule needs to go through the state approval process. It has to be approved by the Interagency Committee on Rulemaking and on the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules mm. before it can go into effect. Well, it's then probably- there'll be an education process to let everybody know, the people on the lakes and the boat owners, what they're allowed to do and what they're not. That's great. Well, let's encourage people to come to the February 15th hearing if this is something um, you support or oppose. Um, it's the process, and it's at the Caspian Lake um, in Greensboro, and I'm sure um, there'll be information on the time and all that stuff on on your website, uh, gentlemen, and I hope people will check it out. Um, we just have a couple of more minutes left. Um, do you, what's the timeline for this? Do you think A&R will make a decision maybe before summer, which is probably the most important time? Go ahead, Jim. Uh, the, the process right now uh, depends on how the agency moves forward. They will – we expect they might promulgate a rule soon after the – hearing on mm-hmm. February 15th, the commentary period. They would propose the rule first to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State would convene the people from all the different state agencies to make sure that it, this rule is within the authority of the agency and that it's legally in good form. Uh, and then if, the, if that committee approves it, It goes to the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules, and that committee meets once a month with a group of legislators, and they make sure that the rule indeed is within the limits of the laws they passed and doesn't have any other administrative problems with it. And at that point, rule goes back to the Secretary of State, it's printed up, and it's enforced. Great. Excellent. And all of these meetings are open to the public. If you want to track uh, this uh, process through the, through it to its conclusion, uh, I thank you both so much for coming on the show. I'm, and thanks to Susan Martin. I'll give her a shout out for bringing this to my attention, uh, because I knew nothing about this and shame on me. Um, but I hope, um, you'll all pay attention and weigh in on the issue, pro or con. Thank you very much, both Jack and Jim, and uh, we'll see you next week. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today with Justin Kenny, who's the chief performance officer for the state, and Katie Buckwald, who's the performance improvement advisor. Whoa, big titles. Indeed. Welcome to the show. Um, could you tell our listeners a little about yourselves and about your interest in performance management? Justin, let's start with you. 
Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the chief performance officer for the state in the Vermont Agency of Administration. I've been in state government for about 10 years now in a variety of different roles. Started in the Department of Environmental Conservation and then moved up to the Department of Finance and Management and finally in the secretary's office. Uh, prior to that, I worked in the environmental field. I worked for the Vermont Youth Conservation Corps. Oh, I love I love UICC as well. I love them. I manage the Winooski Natural Resource Conservation District. Um, I, I guess if you asked me 10 years ago if I would be in this position, I wouldn't have known what the position was. Um, but over time, I've started to learn more about performance management, what we call continuous improvement and lean, and I've really gotten hooked on it. So... <laughs> Prior, my path was really focused on environmental sciences. So I was thinking that one day I'd be a program manager or I would be a division director in the Department of Environmental Conservation. Yeah. And the LEAN program, which is called the Toyota Production System, right. came to DEC back in 2013. And I took some training and I was like, well, this is really interesting stuff. Yeah. I didn't know there was a body of knowledge or a field of work around it. But again, I got hooked. And then all of a sudden, I'm now investing more and more energy into learning about it. That's and, cool. and the things that, you know, I've been thinking about this, what really gets me excited is when I get to work with people and see the improvement happen. Right. So a lot of my work is one-on-one -on -one coaching with individuals. Sometimes we're working on larger scale projects, but primarily it's helping people figure out different ways to solve problems and improve the work. And I might spend an hour with somebody, and at the end of that hour, feel so good, good for you. because they have something different that they can do, right. and they've improved in some way. Yeah. So that's my main focus is that, like feeling that good energy that's from great. helping people. Very nice. That's yeah. good. So, Katie, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you are into performance management? Yeah, sure. Similar to Justin, if you told me this is what I would be doing five years ago, I would not have <laughs> believed you. Uh, my background originally is in water quality science. Uh, went to grad school in Wisconsin, did research on the Great Lakes for a few years, uh, was a research fellow at EPA, which is where I was first introduced uh, to lean, and then took a position with the Clean Water Initiative Program in Vermont DEC, um, January 2020. So I've been in state government for three years. Um, and similar to Justin, I got hooked on continuous improvement and lean uh, pretty quickly working in <clears throat> working in state government. And I think what really drove me towards continuous improvement uh, and performance management was being able to just improve processes, reduce frustration, and do things more efficiently and effectively. Uh, it, it satisfies my perfectionist nature <laughs> deep down, being able to to improve and always perform better. And um, after being at DEC for a couple years, I was with the Agency of Transportation's performance team um, and then joined the Chief Performance Office about eight months ago now. Great. And similar to Justin, what I love about it is just helping people improve their problems That's and true. processes. It's so rewarding. To what I like is when they click, when it clicks with them, yeah. what you're asking, it's almost like a light goes off and they, mm -hmm. they just jump right into it. Um, I just find that I, I agree with you both. It's pretty cool when they go, "Hey, I get, I get this. Yeah. This, this isn't about eliminating my job, which most of them think about it, but it's just making my job easier, easier. better, faster, so more can get done and costless. So there you go. I was laughing. Uh, I was talking to Justin. Um, I've been in state government for a while and also in the legislature and. I went through in my head, and he, and he's mentioned a couple of these performance um, 
processes that that the state tried to do over the years. It was RBA, Lean, SEI, which is Strategic Enterprise Initiative, uh, Kaizen. That was a big one. We had people go away to learn how to do Kaizen and come back. And then uh, the legislature put together Challenges for Change. We had a song on that. If you'd like to hear it, I could sing it for you. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> exactly. That'll make everybody hang up. Um, and I just wanted to share with the listeners that um, when Phil Scott was uh, elected governor, he was very interested and supportive of this, which we had, didn't have before. Um, you need You need support from the top, and that's it, because you won't get people in the divisions – to um, sometimes work with you unless you've got support from the top. And fortunately, um, the governor really gets this. And uh, he's put out a uh, an executive order. Um, and then the legislature kind of went along. They they put the your position, uh, Justin, in legislature. And uh, maybe you can tell our listeners what's that definition of what, what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's definitely changed over time. So the position came about in around 2013, 2014 with Act 186 right. of 2014, which is lovingly called the Outcomes Bill, first in the nation bill. Um, it helped us solidify the use of results-based accountability throughout state government, both in the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, it also uh, created an annual outcomes report, which is something that the chief performance officer needs to provide on a yearly basis, which speaks to outcomes of well-being for Vermonters, of which at this point we have 10, and uh, a number of associated indicators that speak to whether or not, as a state, we're actually achieving those things. That's great. Yeah, so the position was mostly, in those early days, focused around results-based accountability, performance measurement. There was also some work around grants and contracts and ensuring that there were performance measures embedded into those. And then when Governor Scott came in, he had the Pivot Executive Order program to improve Vermont, uh, Vermont Outcomes Together, which added a little more meat to the bones of the Chief right. Performance Office right. position. Um, and that did a number of things. It created um, the framework for a statewide strategic plan, which we had one, and now we're going through the process of developing a new one. It created a Continuous Improvement Steering Committee, and it also launched a series of statewide trainings right. that merged two main methodologies that we use – Results-based accountability, which you talked about, right. and then mm-hmm. lean. And if I remember system. correctly, lean actually started in the automotive yep. industry. That's where it first it showed and showed how effective it was to get those cars through the assembly line and and fix. And Katie, um, were you one of the lean contact? I mean, one of the the performance contacts out in in the departments. Is that how you got involved in that? You were – I don't forget what, they, what they're what they called, but in each department, there's a contact for you. Yeah, there's like a continuous improvement lead. Right. And yep. were, is that what you were doing? Uh, Not originally. So I got connected with Justin through our continuous improvement training program ah, and working okay. with the lean coordinator at DEC, okay. uh, who is a great mentor for me and introduced yeah. me to a, a lot of these concepts. That's great um, because I think that really helped that you have contacts in the field because um, – it just works. And I think um, people are starting to see the impact of this because they know it's here and it's going to stay. Yeah. Well, so I mean, good we, for you guys. We couldn't do what we do without having contacts in the agencies and right. departments. I mean, our office doesn't have authority. Right. We really don't. Right. 
I mean, we have the Secretary of Administration who does, right. but our office doesn't really have that much authority aside from what's in the statute right. around reporting. So everything that we do relies on influence and right. people who are voluntarily coming to us right. for help. So how does it – you mentioned training, and that's a big part of what you do, correct, is train uh, leaders uh, Leaders of the departments are supposed to be trained as well, plus the the people that are your liaisons. Who does that training? Do you all do that or – how does that work? Yeah, so I'll talk a little and then Katie can chime in because she's revamping our training program. Right. But um, originally we had consultants that were providing the training um, back bef- before I was working in the agency, back when I was in DEC. Um, and I wasn't that happy with the training that they were providing. It also felt very transactional. So the consultant would come in and provide the training, but then staff had questions about how to implement some of this stuff. Right. And there was no one to provide that level of support. So we quickly took that training and internalized it so that we could be providing that. So we had the, the knowledge, the experience, and the capabilities to be doing that work and support people as they attempt to implement almost in a coaching model. Huh. So all of the training that exists now is done by us, and we believe that it's important that we build those relationships For with sure. our employees. That's great. Yeah. Um, and how do they how do they respond? Um, do they volunteer to go to the training or are they um, asked by their – Yeah, so it, it, mix, it depends. Some yeah. departments see the benefit of it yeah. and they put a requirement that so many staff need to be through so many levels of training. Yeah. Uh, in other places, it's more voluntary and people yeah. really want to come to training because they're interested in it. Right. We do have uh, – our Continuous Improvement 101 course is a required course for anyone that's new to state government. So it's part of the onboarding oh, process. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, Excellent. which is great. Yeah, so they get a little hit of that, and then if they want to take more, they can go on to our right. other training programs. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Well, I just I just ran into the you're, – you're trying to – the words they said for me never to use, and you actually just used them. Um, effective and efficient, they, re, they translated that to mean less jobs, the employees that, that I worked with. Yeah. And you really had to explain to them that's not what's happening here. Um, and because they said every time we hear effective and efficient, that means – Less of something, less money, less whatever. But um, once they get into it, it's it's almost like creating monsters. They're like, oh, let's do this. Let's do that. It's really cool. Um, I remember uh, you mentioned the strategic plan, and I noticed it was running out. I think it's 2022. So how are you – doing that, uh, putting the strategic plan together. Who's involved? You must be, Katie. And Yeah, uh, so we – on the strategic plan, we're acting in kind of a consulting role. So that's being driven by the governor's office ah. and then the cabinet and the extended right. cabinet, which, I mean, makes sense right. for a strategic plan right. to be driven from the very top because right. that's where the authority is. Right. So we are available when people want support in either developing their strategies or their performance measures and when the time comes for that strategic plan to actually be implemented, which is the important part of the strategic planning process right. is doing the to work do that you, you said you were going to do, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, right? That's when people can reach out to us for help. How do we figure out how to do X, Y, or Z? How do we manage performance? How do we adapt and adust as we're implementing and we run into obstacles? As we know, we will Excellent. as we try to do the work. That's great. When the governor first took office, he pointed to four things that he said everything we do should be focused 
on these four things. Do you know them by heart or shall I just read them? (laughs) I'll read them. Um, uh, But just Vermont has a growing economy. Vermont is an affordable place to live, work and do business. Uh, to we must protect the most vulnerable, and then was added modernization and efficiency for state government, and that's you guys. So partially, partially. And, the, and the agency of digital services. Oh, there you go on the modernization side. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how is how do you, you have? Uh, I just read their annual report, which all these reports are on their website. It was seventy nine pages. And you told me this new one you're putting out is 200 and something pages? Yeah. So the the annual outcomes report is the one that you're referring to. Right. I mean, that's basically a page per indicator that speaks to the data points and the trend line and what's happening. Um, The next report that I need to file is the programmatic and performance measure budget report, which is a requirement of the budget process. And that basically dictates that. For the programs that we run in state government, we should have performance measures right. that speak to what are we getting for the money that we're spending on this particular program. And so that's a report that I'm that. currently – well, yeah. Um, that's the one I'm currently putting together. So that – I think it's going to be 260-something pages. Um, there is a table of contents to go through, but it's <laughs> it's one page per yeah. program. Well, that they would read the legislators. They'd pick out what they're interested in and then yes. go to that program. So I read where, uh, at least in the prior report, you had 180 programs. How do you – seriously, how do you pick them? But then how – then you have to train and then you have to monitor. How do you do that? That's a lot of programs. Do you want to say anything yeah, about go it, Go ahead. <laughs> Jump in. Sure. So for each program, we – we want them to have programmatic performance measures that talk to how much they're right. doing, how well they're doing, and is anyone better off or if they made an impact. So as part of that reporting process, um, they're encouraged to develop those measures and track and implement them over time. Um, and some programs will come to us uh, seeking additional support. Once they've developed their measures, they want to figure out how to strategically put them into practice and focus their improvement efforts. But if a program has performance measures, is reviewing them regularly, then they can use that for for driving improvement because there ultimately will be a gap between where they are now, say processing 20 grants a quarter, but they want to be processing 50 grants a quarter. Right. And then we can use continuous improvement tools and methodologies to close that gap to get them from 20 to 50, and they can work with us in our office to or participate in our continuous improvement training to be able to make those improvements and deliver better outcomes and results for Vermonters. I have a story to tell you which will make your head spin. When I first joined state government way back when, I talked to, and I won't mention the name, he was proud that they that contracts could get completed and signed off, ready for this, nine months. Oh, boy. And, and that was down from where it was before. And I thought... What kind of contractor would be waiting around nine months to hear from the state? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're gonna they want to make money. They're off. They're gone. They're probably not even available. But well, and if it's a construction contract, it's yeah. a short season to get the work done. Exactly out. nine yeah. months. I'm telling you, I walked back to my office and I was just my head was spinning. I thought, good grief. So I bet that's not the case anymore. <laughs> I bet it's a little shorter turnaround time. So. Let's talk about the, the, the projects that, that you're on now. What, can you talk about some of those projects and, and the successes you've had and so people understand what's happened here and what, what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, so I, I can talk to that and then Katie can chime in because she's been the lead on a couple projects right. as well. 
I think our offices shifted quite a bit since the pandemic hit. Mm, So we were doing larger scale projects, uh, multi-agency projects, multi-program projects. And we were finding that for a small office of two, and it was actually one for about two years, just myself, after your sister left, right? Um, That it was very difficult to maintain those projects, keep them going. They were all all required resources. Many of them required IT. And so when the pandemic hit and a lot of that work stopped because it was now reaction mode, we needed to respond, we took a hard look at what it was that we were doing. And we found that we could actually get more of a return on investment if we were working on smaller scale projects because the likelihood of success was a lot greater and it's less of a resource drain. Mm -hmm. So over the past two, three years, we've shifted from doing a lot of those larger projects and now we're working more on a smaller scale. So many of our projects might be with one individual person. I have a lot of work that I do around Microsoft Excel. Mm. Surprising. Right. Uh, but people will reach out to me and they'll say, hey, I'm doing this work in Microsoft Excel. It takes me, let's say, eight hours a month to do X, Y, or Z. And we find ways to bring that down to 30 minutes or 15 minutes. Wow. And think about all that additional capacity for mm-hmm. that one person. So I might spend an hour or two with somebody and see – massive results as a result of that little bit of time that's great that i'm spending so once that started to happen i was like what i don't want to spend time on the big projects that require a lot and have a potential to fail or not be implemented in the way that they should and so that's part of that shift and so a lot of the projects that we're working on now are smaller scale maybe with an individual or they might be with a program do you want to speak to katie what are you working on yeah well in the smaller scale projects too are so much more effective at creating a culture of continuous improvement because there's greater opportunity for individual growth and development when we're working with individuals and small teams as compared to large, like, interagency projects. So it's helping us build a culture. Yeah, some of the projects we're working on now, we've been doing a lot of strategic planning efforts with individual teams, um, working with a couple different teams in the Department of Environmental Conservation who are interested in being more proactive and less reactive and adapting to changes more easily and building their capacity and growth. So it's been great to lead them through a process and give them some strategies to move forward and implement. Um, Also working on some standardization efforts uh, within the agency of administration where processes are performed differently in different places and they want to reduce the variation and standardize the processes to speed up training and onboarding and, and succession planning as well. Also working with a team in the Agency of Human Services that was uh, recently undergoing a merger and a centralization effort, and we were providing change management support to their director, uh, as well as defining roles and responsibilities using a a RACI matrix. So we've been having a lot of success at that programmatic level and making a lot of improvements within uh, programs and focusing on their processes, too. So how do you pick these these, um, programs or the individuals? Do they come to you, or do you hear about it through your liaison in the department? Because there's so, I mean, good grief, you could be doing this forever, ever, ever. I mean, there's a million things you could tackle. There's so much to tackle. And it's better, I think, just from an impact perspective, to take the low-hanging fruit and show people what you can do. And then they go, oh, because I would think the bigger projects are, are overwhelming. They can be in overwhelming. Some, in some cases, yeah, right? Yeah, and I, and I think the reality is that sometimes we are not mature enough as an organization to handle some of those bigger scale projects because right. they're difficult. There's yeah. so much that's going on. You need the resources. And change is capability. hard. Change is hard. Change. So many reasons why. Right. Right. So as we're working at the lower level with individuals and small, smaller programs, we're thinking about this as a marathon, not a sprint. 
So as we're building those problem-solving capabilities in small places here and there, over time, that's going to make it so we can handle those larger-scale projects. Right. Not the chief performance office, but the people that are doing the work can right. handle those projects right. much better than they could have before. Yeah. So that's one of our focuses. But I would say in terms of how projects come to us, it's some, it's somewhat variable. Yeah. Sometimes right, deputy secretary of AOA might say, hey, I want you to work on this project. And I say, yes, I will. Yeah. Um, don't question that, right? Uh, sometimes it might be, you know, someone on the cabinet or extended cabinet that asks for support. Sometimes it's someone that came through training, got really jazzed about what yeah. they were learning, and then they reach out and say, hey, can I get some help with nice. this? That's yeah. cool. Well, they must be – you must uh, present a very comfortable atmosphere for them because so there's no – We try. You can tell what my response – my reaction's always been they're just very leery. Um, and so yeah. if you build a trust and, and um, they understand – and if you give them the power to change it, they're off and running. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really funny sometimes. They just, wow, this is great. Yeah, and our, and our model is we don't turn projects down generally. Right. If we can't support it for whatever reason because – we don't have the capacity or the time or resources, right. we try to figure out some sort of alternative solution for them. That's great. We, we do have a group of what we call green belts throughout the organization. And who are they? Who are they? So these are folks that have uh, gone through our most advanced Oh, like karate. Tra- like, ah, yeah, like martial arts, it. green yes, belts. <laughs> yes. um, so they've gone through our most advanced training, and we've trained them to be facilitators right. of continuous improvement projects. Nice. So they will volunteer on an as-needed basis to facilitate projects for other agencies and organizations, right? right? right. And the thinking there is that that's professional development for them. So they might be, let's say, in the Agency of Agriculture. They go to Department of Environmental Conservation. They might facilitate a project or a meeting. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's five hours. They go back to Agency of Ag. They've learned through that experience, and now they're able to take that learning and implement it in their own programs. Excellent. That's really great. Um, What is the the legislature must be very involved with what you do if you're going to be presenting them with 200-some-odd pages. Um, Do you have to testify a lot up there? Is it GovOps, House? I wouldn't say a lot, but, yeah, it's usually GovOps generally. Um, We also work very closely with the Government Accountability Committee. Ah, okay. Yeah, and appropriations as well. So usually when the annual outcomes report comes out and this programmatic and performance measure budget report comes out, we get asked to testify. So GAC's still there? They are still there. I love it. Thank you. Well, I don't don't know if they'll (laughs) still be there this session, but um, yeah. Yeah, because, well, somebody has to translate, I think. Yeah. They, they must know by now what, what you're up to and, and understand the, the – Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think they're they're in a position based on the last meeting of wanting to rethink what it is that they're responsible for doing. Right. Because as, as they are charged, it's a very tall yeah. order. Right. Well, the legislature can't do much themselves on, on the individual like you're talking about. They can't do that. But when I was at DMV, we submitted a lot of bills that changed things like we didn't have to send um, certified mail anymore. That they have to weigh in on. So uh, a lot of departments should just put in some bills and they can they can say, well, don't do that anymore if it makes sense. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, there's our. We have to take a break. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back talking about continuous improvement.
In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and I'm back with my guests, and we're talking about continuous improvement, um, which we sort of um, lived with. Uh, Justin mentioned my sister. She was the first chief performance officer um, and worked with the legislature to put most of this stuff together, um, but retired now. And um, and Justin is um, taking over and doing an amazing job. Um, we talked – I have a note here that the progr- programmatic and performance measure budget report, is that what we were talking about, but they threw in the word budget in there? That is, yes, that oh. is the report. Oh, that's the report. That's the 260-page oh, oh, yeah, report well, I'm, that I'm compiling yes. now. And it says you work with finance and management and then the digital – what is the – it's a new name for the department. The Agency of Digital Services. Digital Services. Oh, I can't even say that. Good Lord. Um, anyway, um, so you all work together to um, – For that particular uh, report, yeah. uh, part of it comes from the Department of Finance and Management right. out of the Vantage budget system because uh. we're reporting actuals, budget is passed, and then the governor's recommended budget. Per oh, appropriation. I see what we're And then the programs about. are underneath us. I see. Yep. Okay, cool. And um, – it's good that you're working with with that group. Do they come with you when you're when when they, were they helping you when you're in a department and and they need some digital help, they need some computer help and systems, or how does that association work? Yeah, do you, well, I, I can talk about the community of practice that we've set up. Sure. Yeah. So our office runs three different what we call communities of practice. Uh-huh. Uh, one of those is focused on continuous improvement called our Continuous Improvement Network, and that's for any employee within state government can participate. It's through Microsoft Teams, oh. and it's a place for people to learn more about what it is that we do, learn more about different methods for improving the work. Um, and also mm-hmm. recently we've started to develop these smaller communities of practice within that around grants, around finances, because like mm-hmm. – this work is happening across state government. Right. And there needs to be a space for people to talk about, well, how are we doing grants? <laughs> right. How are we right. doing it well? Right. So right. that's one. Um, but we have two other communities of practice that are focused on technology, one of which is around the Office 365 suite of products, which is Microsoft, which everyone in state government right. uses. Right. We have thousands of users in those on a daily basis. Um, and that we partner with the Agency of Digital Services on. So we run biweekly meetings as a place for people to come in, ask questions. How do I do this in Teams? How do I do this in Excel? We have a Microsoft representative that answers questions, talks about all the newest updates that are coming. It's really powerful for people to learn these tools. And then we have another one that's the more advanced suite of tools in Microsoft called Power Platform that we also partner with the Agency of Digital Services. And you guys are all versed in all of this? Yes. Whoa, serious. I never could do Excel to save myself. (laughs) Um, thank God I was in exempt positions, <laughs> and I had people that could help me out, like my sister. I'd come home sometimes and ask her to help me, so they all thought I did Excel, but I didn't. Well, it was, and, yeah. it was actually Susan. This is a space that we've kind of grown into over the past year yeah. and a half or two because we saw a gap. Yeah. You think about employees come in, 
and it's somewhat just of an expectation that they know how to use Outlook, yes. and Word, and Excel. And so there's not a lot of training available. So they do their best. Right. They might pick up some things here and there. But unless they're going out of their way explicitly to learn how to use these tools right. at their most advanced capacity, right. it's not going to happen. Yeah. So we saw this gap and we said, well, this is a great gap for us to fill because we are versed in it. Because right. these really are productivity tools. For sure. Like someone's yeah. ability to do something in Excel – fast or slow, right. determines the results that we're going to get, and it's going to determine how much that program costs. Yeah. So if you're you're paying Katie an hourly wage, and you're paying me an hourly rate wage, and it takes her eight hours, and it takes me one hour, right? Right. There's a big difference there. Yeah. Well, I think I read an article, and I don't remember the percentage of the what percentage of the tools that people have that they don't use, they don't know they're there, they just and then they'll see somebody using and like, what are you doing? <laughs> I didn't know I could do that. Yeah. Um, so they and I'm, that's very important to have them use the tools we've given them, the most effective and efficient. There you are. There's those words. So yeah, we, and, I, and I would say, you know, there's there's often this saying of do more with less. We don't like to say that. We like to say do more with what you have, which huh, that's what this is. Good, right. These are available to folks. Right. They're right in front of them. We want them to get the most they possibly can out of these tools. Right. Because we're paying yeah. for them, regardless of whether right. we use them or not. And I think you're right about the, the time it takes because uh, I know when I was working, there's a lot of people that uh, do old-fashioned sort of things like, um, sure. you know, doing hand hand math or whatever instead of stuff you should be doing like calculators or whatever. Do they use calculators anymore? Probably not. There's uh, probably com- in some their places. computer. <laughs> I won't say Sorry, what that dated, but that probably. dated me. Never mind. That's it. So I would like to talk a little bit. You were mentioning grants. What have you guys done in the grant area to uh, make that more um, effective and efficient? Yeah, there hasn't been much that we have done on a statewide level at that, at least from the purview of our office. Uh-huh. We've been working with a couple different units. So we did uh, some work previously with the Agency of Agriculture, the Agricultural Mm. Development Division. They came to us because they wanted to streamline their granting process. And they were trying to figure out better ways uh, to streamline the different roles and responsibilities as well as the staff. Uh. So we did some continued work with them over the course of a year or two years, and they were able to bring down their granting times considerably. And increase morale for staff who had to do the work. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's very important, and I think that's one of the most important things to to focus on is the staff. Um, when I was in DMV, people would go home discouraged because the piles were still there. Yeah. And um, we just shifted around that if if this pile is still here, but you're you know you're moving the pile over to the to the done, it does it's okay if this grows because you're you're. You know, I'm not explaining this well, but you're doing the work, and and just that mental thing made them go faster, better. I mean, it was amazing what what a little bit of um, encouragement and and attaboys do for you. That's great. So, um, what are you hoping, kind of going forward? What what would you see for your department of two? You're doing a lot of work for two. We, yeah, we try. Good grief. We try to be as effective and efficient yes, as we exactly. possibly can be. Um, gosh, what do we got going on? So as part of our internal strategic plan, we've got a number of things that we're focused on. Uh, one of those is just increasing employee professional development. Right. So increasing knowledge, skill, and ability level of employees, which I'll let Katie talk about that because she's taking the lead on that. Um, 
We also know that there's a tremendous amount of work that we need to do at the middle with supervisors and managers. Mm, right. So, and we, through experience, we have seen this where we train employees, they're excited, they go back, they try to implement, and they get squashed because right. the culture doesn't allow it. Right. And that's really difficult. Right. And so we came to realize, yeah, we can train everybody under the sun and these principles and concepts, but if they go back to a culture that doesn't allow them to use it, right. it's a waste of time get and resources. Get a little deflated. Yeah. People yeah. get deflated and then they leave. Yeah. Oh, right? That's so. the other thing. Oh. Right? People yeah. leave if yeah. they're in an environment that's not conducive yeah. to what they want. Yeah. They have to feel invested. Um, if you can hold on, we have a call from Jim from Montpelier. Jim, do you have a question for our guests? Well, hi, Pat. Uh, I just uh, wanted to just kind of chime in and say that uh, this has been an interesting discussion. Um, I think you know who this is. I do. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I think, you know, there's a couple of points I think to make, and that is SCI, Challenges for Change, and all the other reports that were done in the early 2000s were, were all designed to discuss the issue of uh, state employees who are getting close to retirement and how do we overcome that brain drain? Right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, as you remember, probably most of the leadership at that time thought, and this is goes both House, Senate, and the governor's office thought, oh, this then we can get rid of staff, and that's not what it was designed to do. Uh, what what had to happen was to put resources in place, uh, for instance, the Microsoft platforms and stuff so that people could do their jobs better. Uh, and, and I think that w- was lost during probably the last 20 years until the last probably five or six. Right. Um, and, and then the other thing is that um, when a lot, and I'm sure that your your uh, guests will agree with this, but uh, when, when you're doing these IT projects and whatever, the really, the, the, the pass or fail for those IT projects is how much uh, planning was done before you went out to RFP. Unfortunately, too often an RFP is put out on the pl- on the on the street that is uh, not really ready for prime time, but it gets to all the points. But the, the work hasn't been done about how this is going to get implemented, and it, that has to be done ahead of time. And, it, and I'll just use as an example uh, my old office. We, you know, it used to take for corporations, an annual report used to take 10 to 12 weeks to be processed. After we put our new system in place, That's it was instantaneous. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things that I think that can happen. Uh, and I, I'm a firm believer it's not about reducing staff. It's about making, giving them the resources to do their jobs better. And I think Justin said that earlier. Yep. Uh, so I just wanted to chime in. Thank you kindly. Can we say your last name, Jim, from uh, Montpelier? <laughs> Thank you. My husband called in once, Bruce from Berlin, really? (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thank you. I couldn't agree with you more, Jim. You know I'm a fan. So enjoy your retirement there. But Jim brings up a a great um, issue. If you don't fix the process before you... Um, make it, um, you know, big, bigger, better, faster with, um, with technology. You just have a faster, bad system. Yeah. And, and nobody takes the time up front 
to fix the process and then implement uh, changes um, electronically and whatever whatever else because it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think that's what Jim was saying. Yeah, we should we should always be working to make a process more effective before we make it efficient. And when right. you think about technology, technology allows us to make a process more efficient, do it faster. Right. The effective part is more important. Are we right. doing the right work? Exactly. And so if we're heading into a big IT project, which you think some of these projects, we're going to be saddled with a system for 10, 20, 30 years. And what we get is what we get. Right. Really. Right. right? Massive investments of dollars. If we're not fixing the process beforehand and exactly. we're, we call automating the waste of the old way of doing it, mm-hmm. then we're going to be stuck with that process for a very long Just time. Just faster. Yes. <laughs> Which doesn't help. Excellent. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Jim Condos, for calling. That was really great. I want to ask Katie while she's here. She's been working on a new training program. And um, I'll turn it over to you, Katie. Can you explain what you've been up to? Yeah, sure. So our previous training program uh, – involved white belts and green belts, which is pretty similar to uh, karate, karate and, also, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, how continuous improvement training is done very often in the private sector is through a belt system. You would progress towards a black belt. Uh, we're actually doing away with belts to give people more uh, ability to customize their learning paths and we're moving instead towards badges, like Girl Scout badges, if oh. you will. <laughs> so you can collect cool. them, collect one or collect all. And um, that should allow people to Focus on what's going to be most important for them. So our, our first badge um, is really Foundations of Continuous Improvement and Teaching Scientific Thinking to People. Uh, one of the greatest problems with problem solving is that people have a tendency to jump to conclusions. So the, the first section is focused on using scientific thinking to overcome that tendency and uh, ultimately get to root causes and understand our problems and define our problems before we develop solutions and potentially expensive solutions that actually don't solve the root cause of the problem. So that's what Foundations is focused on. And then we also have badges on improving processes. So this is related to visualizing processes with process maps, analyzing them with root cause and data analysis, standardizing and documenting them. That's huge in state government, and uh, especially for training and onboarding and succession planning is uh, in many places around state government. There's a lot of people close to retirement, and we need to be you know, capturing nice. that knowledge and transferring it to, to the new employees coming on. We also have um, badges related to digging more specifically into continuous improvement tools like root cause and visual management and also facilitation. So our facilitation badge is for people who are interested in leading continuous improvement projects and it teaches like stages of group development and how to work with groups and uh, overcome conflict and challenges that might result from, from group facilitations. And what we're most excited about is our new operational excellence learning path. So as Justin was sharing earlier, we have a huge need to develop supervisors and managers to be leaders in continuous improvement. So we have four badges within that learning path, um, the first of which is on setting the direction. So this is like strategic planning and establishing vision, mission, and values and a path forward for your team. And then a badge on improving performance and results. So that's like performance measure development, like we were talking about earlier, and how to uh, increase value and results for your customers and Vermonters. Then we also have a, a badge on creating a culture. So that's what's really important. Do you get a sash so you can put the thing like <laughs> I used to do as a Girl Scout? I have my sash with all my... Maybe things. We might do That'd NFTs be... because that's the new thing. Oh, right? is it? oh cool. Yeah. I want one of those. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but that's cool. That's, that People need to have something. They say a good meeting is when you walk away 
with something in your hand that somebody gave you from the meeting. They say that. Mm-hmm. Something to work towards. So, and to yeah, achieve. right. Exactly. How, yeah. This is a question. How do you train people, and this is not as easy as it sounds, to come up with performance measures because a lot of people will, like, say, well, we're going to do 50 widgets instead of 40. Is that really better? And and how do you teach people to know what a performance measure is? Because oh, I know years ago, working with the legislature, like, like to bang your head against the wall because no none of us understood what a performance measure was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it first starts with the definition of who your customers are and what you're trying to achieve for those customers and how you can measure that. Because if we're develop, developing performance measures that aren't grounded in a customer focus, then they're not going to be the most important measures or help us to improve the results and the yeah. outcomes that we want. So first defining who are your customers and what are you trying to achieve for them, and then how can you measure if you are achieving that right. for them. So we, we couch those as outcomes, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve, and then what are the indicators, the types of data that will tell us if we're achieving those outcomes or not. And for me, it's trusting your employees because they know. And once you you make them focus or, or, or they focus on what's happening. I know at DMV when we changed, I, we did this routine and we went from two and a half hours to 20 minutes at the counter. And every, except for two ideas, which I had, every other idea and change we made was from the employees mm-hmm. because they're the ones who do the job. So. They know Pay the attention. problems the best. Exactly. And yes. they know whether it's good or bad. They're just sort of afraid to step up. But as Jim said, if you know it's not about your job, it's about fixing things and making your life easier, Yeah, um, it's better. Do you want to add to that about performance management or how do you set goals? Because it's hard to explain. It is hard to explain. Yeah. I mean, part of it is data literacy, just understanding what data is, what you, we should be looking for with data. Part of it's also just when we develop Whatever the systems are, whether it's a process or an IT system to do the work, how do we embed data within that so that we can extract that information to know whether or not we're actually achieving what we want to achieve? Sometimes that's difficult for folks. They're just doing the work. Right. Not necessarily measuring it, but they're doing the work. Um, But we have um, a model that we've been developing that uses that results-based accountability approach and those three questions, how much, how well, is anyone better off, or what has been our impact sometimes we can switch it to. Um, and the model makes it more clear where are the areas where we might have performance measures. We might measure the inputs into the things that we're doing, the people, the resources, et cetera. We might measure the actual work itself, the activities and the right. timeliness of those, quality. We'll measure the outputs, what do we actually produce, and then the effects of that on the people that we're serving, and then eventually what are the outcomes we want to get at a population scale across Vermont. So any of those points could be some sort of performance measurement. That's great. And that model helps people contextualize yeah, it. That's excellent. Um, we have another caller. Um, Michael from Waitsfield, um, you have a question for our guests? Yeah, I definitely have a question. About 18 months ago there was an, uh, an announcement from the state that uh, – a big software company was supposed to take over a Kerry Green Mountain with jobs. The minimum job was oh. paying $80,000. And we never heard, I personally never heard, it was really exciting. There was a lot of, a lot about it. And I, and the, the state was going to help, uh, get it here with some kind of funds, but I never heard about it again. It, it, it must have fallen apart, but why? And 
and how come we never heard about yeah, it? I, I bet my guests don't know about no. this. This is not in there. <laughs> I can't in speak there. to it. But I tell you what, Michael, you leave your phone number um, with Danny, and um, I will find out for you and call you back, okay? You remember you remember the story? I do. I'll yeah. be back to you. Oh. Okay. okay Thank you very much. Yeah, we uh, uh, there, there's been some issues of bringing bringing companies here, mm. and they want all kinds of things, and you know sometimes we just can't comply. So there you go. Um, but I will follow up. It's better to do that. Yes. Um, so anyway, we only have a, a few minutes. Do you want to wrap this up with um, how can people get to your website and? Um, yeah, I mean, the easiest is through a Google search. Um, it's on the Agency of Administration website. Chief Performance Officer would be in the left-hand navigation. Um, I'm excited about all the work that we're doing. I mean, it is. Right. I will say it is challenging. Change is challenging. Right, it is. Um, but it's also extremely rewarding. We have a lot of great things that are in the works. We have a strategic plan that's guiding our direction. That's great. Again, we're trying to make it so the work that we do is as valuable as possible and having the highest return on investment. And that means investing in in employees. I mean, as Jim Condo has mentioned, right? right? Employees right. run state government. They're it. So the better our employees are, the yep. better we are be, are able to deliver for Vermonters, like mm-hmm. fundamentally. Yeah. It's all about employees. Yeah, it's exactly. And we don't have the time to do this, but I was going to – usually I'd say, well, can you wrap it up for me? But your vision, mission, and strength is just so on target with what I'm you're trying – you think with, so. No, I do. <laughs> usually vision, mission uh, – you know, most employees don't even like to have that discussion um, because you'll, you'll pick one word and have a discussion yeah. for two days on the one word on what yes. to use. But yours was really excellent, so whoever put it together, kudos – um, but it just shows what you're doing. And so I would encourage people to um, to take a look at your website and thank you for all the work you're doing. And it is hard. So you're doing a good job. Well, we love it. Yeah, We're that's happy. good for you. So uh, we thank you all for listening. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.